On this prequel episode, we've got our Pride and Prejudice follow-up. We're learning about translating fiction and previewing Solaris. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Before we get to our Pride and Prejudice follow-up and hear what everybody had to say about our thoughts and what their feelings are, on the 2005 Pride and Prejudice versus the book, we've got our patron shout-outs. We have two new patrons this week. At the Hugo Award-winning level, that's $5 a month and gets access to bonus content, we have Tracy Drews. Thank you, Tracy. And a new Academy Award winner at the $15 level, which gives you priority recommendation uh, status. And that new patron is Max Winters. Welcome and thank you, Max. And as we always do, we're going to go through our Academy Award-winning patrons, and they are Max Winters, joining the ranks for the first time, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, Kira Knightley is my favorite atheist, and Alina Dolet-Kolova. I think I knew that about Kira Knightley. I don't think I did. I did. It's one of the, yeah, it's like her and Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> or like the famous ones i don't know but yeah uh fun fact all right let's go ahead and find out what everybody had to say about pride and prejudice yeah well you know that's just like uh your opinion man so we got a good bit of feedback for pride and prejudice mm -hmm. uh, lots of comments so i'm gonna go through some of those uh, on Facebook, we had two votes for the movie and one for the book. Uh, Tracy said, I have a love-hate relationship with Pride and Prejudice. I always loved the movie and could never get through the book for whatever reason. I've tried reading it so many times since high school and I would just stop at the beginning and not finish. However, when I saw you all were doing this episode, I decided I was going to finish this book no matter what, and I actually enjoyed it. So thank you for ending my weirdly toxic relationship with this book. I'm still going to give it to the movie because I love how they portray the story, but the book has a newfound respect from me. Cool. That's nice that somebody was able to get through the book. Yeah, we love to hear stuff love like that. Love to hear that. it. Yeah. Matthew said, I had to read the book in college and the zombies barely make an appearance. I don't see how anyone can prefer it. So Matthew's got the jokes. Yes, there is a, which <laughs> we even a, talked about, but there is a Pride and Prejudice in Zombies film. Mm -hmm, yes. That is, I think. But it is based on a book. Oh, oh, it's also yeah, there based was on like a book, a book version, version first, which then, I've never read. My understanding of it was that it's like literally Pride and Prejudice, but with like zombie pieces written, written yeah. in. I, I don't know if that's accurate. I've never yeah. read it, um, but it I did get. That's what it is. That's what it sounds like the movie is. Yeah, it did get a film adaptation, which I have also not seen. Nope, so. me neither. Maybe that's a someday thing. Yep. Um, Ian said, I'm a cishet white dude about to turn 40 that never bothered to try out Jane Austen before you guys picked it for an episode. I feel like a Midwestern upbringing placed things like Pride and Prejudice squarely in the this is for girls category. Um, I got into it, though. The book is interesting from a cultural standpoint, at the very least. The society, and to borrow a phrase from one of her other titles, sensibility of the whole thing felt very strange. The language alone, the phrasing and euphemisms of the early 1810s was something I struggled with, and I'm a voracious reader. 
The movie, on the other hand, made understanding the dialogue much easier, as Kira Knightley and British John Cusack had very good chemistry and repartee. As someone new to Austin, I have to go movie. The dialogue flows much easier than the reading, and the details changed felt more like streamlining than omission. Interesting. Um, and, and, you know, I can relate to that. Like, the language is kind of tough to get through yeah. when you're reading something that's older. Um, there are other pieces of fiction that I've felt that way. I can't think of one off, off, off the cuff. But I, there's definitely other mm-hmm. pieces of fiction that that or especially period pieces where language yes. is very different. We're sometimes seeing it because you're, well, I, I think a fair example of that is Shakespeare. Shakespeare is a very is fair a, example. Like an obvious example. Um, I think there's an extra layer to Shakespeare because it is it's meant, meant to be performed, to be performed yeah. and, and viewed rather than right. read. But I think that's definitely a fair example because the language is so far removed from yeah. what we're used to. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to understand it when you're watching when you somebody. Get the context clues yeah. Well, you get the context and you get, you know how that character is actually portraying those right. words rather than just like reading, reading them it, flatly yeah. on a page. Yeah, because they're giving whatever the proper emotion is. If I mean, if they're doing their job correctly, mm-hmm. they're giving whatever the proper emotion is. So you can then figure out, okay, that's how that line is meant. You yes. know, that's a joke as opposed to like a serious line or something right. like that. <laughs> Over on Twitter, we had um, nine votes for the book, four for the movie, and four people who couldn't decide. <laughs> I had to start including that option in the poll. (laughs) Um, And we had several comments. Nathan Bodnar at Nathan Bodnar. Actually, Nathan, tell tell me if it's Bodnar or Bodnar. Let me know, Nathan. Let us know. Um, He said, I'm above all else a romance junkie. There have been many works of fiction that I completely lost the main thread of because I got caught up in a romantic side plot or even a ship that was completely non-canonical. So I love how this movie gave me the romance, and thus it's my choice. Also, Kira Knightley is not in the book. It's true. It's, yeah, fair it's assessment. Accurate. That is accurate. Um, and and you know I think that is really nice about an adaptation like this is that you can it can kind of bring something a little bit different to mm-hmm. the table than you're getting if you know it was just like a word for word right. beat for beat adaptation. Yeah. Um, Patty Cruz Stanfield at Patty Cake 84 said, totally the book. The movie is good, but without being a six hour long miniseries, you can't get the nuanced details mm. of the book. Um, so kind of like the opposite yeah. perspective. Yeah, literally the kind of, yeah. Right, yeah. Opposite. Yeah. So you're, you know, the movie is not, as we discussed at length, a beat for beat adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are going to like that and some people aren't. Mm-hmm. Shelby Suderman at Shelby Suderman said, I preferred the book because I liked the details and Elizabeth's gradual change of opinion of Darcy and Wickham felt more natural to me. But the scene where Darcy helps Bingley workshop his proposal to Jane was my favorite thing in the whole movie. There you go. Similar to to Patty there Mm -hmm. in terms of the details. Uh, Maria Meshkova at Rogue underscore X109 said... The book is funny and the movie is beautiful. I just can't decide. There you go. There's one of our four who couldn't decide. <laughs> it's okay. And Kelly Napier at Standby for Live. Um, Kelly, our Academy Award winning patron who requested mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice and specifically that we do the 2005 film, mm-hmm. said, I love the movie, the cinematography, the music, Kira Knightley, all of it vibes. Also, satire can be hard to express outside of when it was written because the nuance of the era gets lost over time. 
I agree with their decision to focus on the love story for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair assessment, too. Um, satire is definitely something that is of its time that is commenting on, yeah. I mean, often is commenting yeah. on current issues. And when we get far enough removed from that time period, it often can get lost, I yeah. think. It is interesting because the the director did mention, and we talked about this a little bit in the prequel, wanting to set the, one of the reasons that he chose to set the movie in the time period that he did was that he wanted it informed by the fact that the French Revolution had happened and that mm-hmm. this would have caused potential sort of distrust and tension between the bourgeoisie and, or again, mm-hmm. everybody in this movie, or everybody in Pride of Prejudice is kind of they're all, part of the yeah, bourgeoisie. Yeah, they're all, like, ranked. Technically. <laughs> technically. I mean, but <laughs> still, I think they were going for some class, mm-hmm. but the, the which didn't really come across in the movie. Um, but what I was going to say is I think you could... I agree that it can get lost because it can be of whatever specific era it is. But I think you could also take <clears throat> take whatever the satire is at that time and adapt it for mm-hmm. a modern audience to a, a message that works for the modern audience. It's right. definitely more difficult and requires a lot more work than just pulling out the love story and telling right, that yeah. story. If no, yeah, yeah, I agree. That's definitely something you could do with a film. <clears throat> it's also something that could piss people off more, though. Too is if you're mm-hmm. taking and and sort of interpreting the thematic message of the of the satire and like what it's commenting on, right? And if if people disagree with your interpretation of it and the way you adapt it for a modern audience, that could obviously you could get some blowback for that. Whereas True. just yeah. dropping it pretty much yeah. altogether is potentially still going to upset people, but not maybe in the same way, right? And I, you know, I think too. The maybe the strength of an adaptation over the original book in the case of something like satire is even if you aren't changing it or updating it, you can make it more obvious to the audience what you're talking about. Whereas if you're just reading a primary text from that era without already knowing the historical context, you might be a little bit lost. Yeah. And over on Instagram, we had eight votes for the book, five for the movie. Matt W. Nelson said, had to go for the book, though I couldn't be too hard on the movie because of the young lady I saw it with when it was in theaters. We aren't together anymore, but it's still a memory I'm fond of. Fair enough. (laughs) The Leap underscore 77 said, I love reading, but dang, this this historical era is tough sledding. I always appreciate the visual medium more when the written medium is somewhat dense and open to interpretation. Most of the time, I prefer books, but 19th century writing is just not mm. my cup of tea. There you go. And so I, it's, it's a thing I, I think a lot of people feel like we mentioned earlier about something like um, Shakespeare. Right. Where it's just it's so much easier to digest <laughs> seeing yes. it as opposed to reading <laughs> Absolutely. it. And our final comment from The Shy Chick who said, I have to go with the movie. The cinematography with the score is just perfection, and it is one of my comfort films at this point. I will say, I loved the movie so much and inspired me to read not just this book, but many of Austin's works. And I think that's a great outcome, too. Yeah. When you have an adaptation that you love so much that Mm -hmm. it makes you go, I actually want to read that. That That is cool. Awesome. Uh, Ultimately, the book took it. 18 votes to the movie's 11. So a slight edge for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, That's w- kind of about what I expected. Yeah, like I, ex- I expected the book to win, but 
without as much of an obvious landslide yeah, as landslide some of our recent ones. Because it's a, it is a beloved movie by a certain, yeah. you know, sect of people. Interesting. I would also be interested to see what those numbers would be with the miniseries. Not that we're going to do. I'm just saying that would be an interesting comparison. <laughs> yeah, it would be an interesting comparison. All right. Let's go ahead and move on. We talked about how it can be tough sledding to digest uh, something written in an era that you are not familiar with, but it can be equally tough to digest something written in a language you are not familiar with. So let's talk and learn a little bit about translating fiction. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. That was a beautiful transition. Thank you. I was really proud of that one. Whew. If I were still teaching composition, I would have you come talk about transitions to my classes. All right. So let's talk a little bit about translating fiction because this um, novel, Solaris, is a translation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're reading the translation because you don't read. I don't read uh, Polish. You don't read Polish. As it turns out. Nope. <laughs> Not a, not a, I, I read no languages <laughs> other than English and a very poor amount of French. So, yeah, same. Yeah, I could maybe pick through a little bit of French. I could pick through a little but... bit of French if it was like a book I was familiar with. I might yeah. be able to feel my way through it, but other than that, all right. So, um, I think that the topic this week is pretty self-explanatory. But just in case anyone's not sure what I'm referring to. What we're talking about is the process of translating works of fiction into languages other than the language that they were originally written in. Um, There's a bit of a Western tendency to think of translation as translating works either to or from the English language. But of course, translation can mean taking a work from any language Mm -hmm. to any other language. Although the word wouldn't be translation. It would be whatever (laughs) those cultures use. (laughs) It would be so when specifically speaking of <laughs> translating, you are in fact only talking about from English to sure, but the concept of translation <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. can be any languages. Yes. yes. Uh, so translating fiction is a unique challenge, um, especially if we compare it to translating nonfiction. Um, part of what that is is because fiction tends to play with language more and there won't always it won't always perfectly transition into another language so fiction translators not only have to have a powerful grasp on both languages that they're working with they also have to employ quite a bit of creative thought and problem solving now obviously all languages are different even ones that are kind of similar. Um, mm-hmm. For example, romance languages like French and Spanish. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar, but similar, still different. But yeah. um, and so anything with a linguistic quality to it in your writing is going to be inextricably tied to that language. Now we're talking about obvious elements like idioms or metaphors. Um if we were to literally translate the phrase it's raining cats and dogs into another language, that might not necessarily Mm -hmm. mean anything to speakers of that language. Um, But we're also talking about maybe not quite as obvious elements like the rhythm of a piece of writing um, or things like alliteration. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a unique challenge to try and replicate a writer's unique style and voice while still accurately translating the material itself. And I think that's part a big part of what makes fiction such a challenge is that you're trying to copy, you know, content as well as style, mm-hmm. ideally. Yeah. 
And you can even run into the problem of a concept or a word that exists in one language but not in another. Get ready, because I'm about to butcher a German word. <laughs> so there is a German word. Oh, boy. Backfeibengeschicht. Which literally translates in English to cheek whistle face. <laughs> but the concept is a face in need of a slap. That's oh. what that word means. So if you're translating into English, then you have no choice but to translate it as a face in need of a slap mm -hmm. or something similar because there isn't a singular equivalent word mm -mm. in the English language. Maybe there should be, Maybe but there there's not. Be. <laughs> but it's English, so we'll probably just borrow the German one and butcher it a little bit. Yeah, that's what we tend to <laughs> that's, do. Yeah, that is what we tend to do. Uh, Schadenfreude being an example of that. <laughs> Yes. Where, you know, it's a word that, that we don't have a direct translation for, so we just use the German <laughs> word. I assume that's German. <laughs> Sounds German. Yes. Um, I actually don't have this in my notes, but I thought of this later. Um, another thing that you can run into with, especially with fiction, is like made up words mm -hmm. and names. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you can just go ahead and like use whatever the writer made up. Um, but sometimes you might run into other unique challenges. Um, there's one example, and I think I'm remembering this anecdote correctly, um, when translating Harry Potter in the yeah. Chamber this of is Secrets the one that I remember, yeah, yeah. into French. In, I, think, I think in lots of the languages it was In lots issues. of the languages, yes. yeah. But the one I'm specifically thinking of when they translated into French, I'm, in order to get... Tom Riddle's name to Tom spell I am Lord, Lord Voldemort. Voldemort. I'm pretty sure they had to make his middle name Elvis. Oh. If I'm remembering there's that a right. bunch of fun yeah, weird there's a bunch of fun of weird facts about of that. that very specific thing <laughs> of the moment where a D scrambles the letters and it says I am Lord Voldemort and then different languages. Yeah, they had to do very creative things with his name yeah. and stuff to make it uh, to make it to, work. Like, to make that little moment work yeah. in that other language. Another unique challenge with translating fiction is that it invites the biases of the translator, often in ways that's much more of a concern than it would be with nonfiction, where you're just translating, like, factual information. Mm -hmm. um, so I have uh, another anecdote here. Uh, in, two, in 2017, um, Emily Wilson, who is a professor of classical studies at University of Pennsylvania, um, she became the first woman to publish an English translation of Homer's The Odyssey. Mm. And guess what? Her translation contained some notable differences oh, yes, I this. than ones by men who'd already done it. I'm yeah, because no. because there were a lot of people mad about yes, I remember this differences yes. in her translation. But one example that I'll give um, that I think really illustrates this point. Um, so at one point in the Odyssey, the character Penelope unlocks the storeroom where Odysseus keeps his weapons, um, which is one of the things that kind of kicks the end of the story into motion. And as she picks up the key to do that, um, Homer describes her hand as pushus or pacus. I'm not pacus. actually really sure. I don't know. I tried to look it up, but this word also exists in other languages, so I'm not 100% yeah, sure. don't know. Um, but this word means thick. And Wilson wrote in her translator's notes, the problem here since is that in our culture, women are not supposed to have big, thick, or fat hands, right? It's mm -hmm. not feminine. That's right. not beautiful and delicate. 
And other translators have solved that problem by either skipping over the adjective completely, just leaving it out, mm-hmm. or by putting in something that is more traditionally feminine. For example, the 1996 translation by Robert Fagels mentions Penelope's steady hand, hmm. which is not really the same thing as a thick hand. No. Right? Wilson, however, translated it to her, her muscular firm hand Mm -hmm. and further noted in her notes that weaving does in fact make a person's hands more muscular. I wanted to ensure that my translation like the original underlines Penelope's physical competence, which marks her as a character who plays a crucial part in the action. Mm -hmm. Now often older translations of a work can come to be viewed as inaccurate sometimes even problematic due to this issue. You know, sometimes also in due to changes in how we perceive language, um, or especially in the case of older works, changes in the information that's available at the mm-hmm. time. Okay, we could learn more. Yep. Right? Um, so the reason that I wanted to talk about translation today is because Solaris is a translation, and it has its own translation issues which you're going to talk a little bit about. In the Book Facts for Solaris. At precisely 1900 hours, I entered the cabin of the spacecraft and settled back for liftoff. Ready, Kelvin? Ready. Good luck. Donatas Banyonis. Vladislav Dvorjetsky. Natalia Bondarchuk play the leading roles in Solaris. So Solaris is a 1961 novel written by Polish author Stanislaw Lim. Lim was born in Poland in 1921 and was a prolific uh, writer over the course of his life, writing dozens and dozens of short stories, novels, nonfiction works, um, and fiction works that primarily occupied the science fiction genre. But he also writes, wrote several crime novels, a psychological drama inspired by Kafka, uh, two collections of reviews of and introductions to non-existent books, and a number of philosophical essays. Uh, he's regarded as one of the most highly acclaimed sci-fi authors, hailed by critics as equal to H.G. Wells and Olaf Stapledon, hmm. uh, who I've actually never had heard of Olaf Stapledon. I looked Mm-mm. him up and none of his works stuck out to me, so... I have heard of H.G. Wells. <laughs> uh, so Lim, uh, this is interesting, and I, I just wanted to talk about this because I found it very, very fascinating. Lim only ever singled out one American science fiction author for praise, Philip K. Dick. Lim initially held a low opinion of Dick, as he did for most American sci-fi authors. But Dick ended up having se- – um, but another thing that's super interesting is that Dick – so he originally held a low uh, 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 opinion of Dick – um, uh, Philip K. Dick, but ultimately, after reading some of his work, came around and was like, oh, no, he's actually a very talented science fiction writer, not like the rest of those Americans. But Dick actually <laughs> had several disagreements with Lim over the course of his lifetime, and at one point wrote a letter to the FBI to claim that Stanislaw Lim was a false name used by a composite committee operating on the orders of the Communist Party to gain control over public opinion. And that he's not an actual <laughs> author, but is in fact like a, you know, a so created... So Philip, Philip K. Dick tried to like yeah. rat him out, the, like, for lack of a better... Yeah. Even though he wasn't I mean, like in America. Really yeah, him yeah, out, yeah, but... yeah. It's still very strange. Um, 
So there are several reasons thought for why that uh, Philip K. Dick did this uh, that have been presented over the years, including the fact, and this is like the main reason people think, is that Philip K. Dick felt monetarily shortchanged by the Polish publisher of the translation of Ubik, uh, which I've I've not read Ubik, and I've heard, I remember, I think Aaron talked about Ubik a little bit at one point. It's a very interesting, strange Mm -hmm. uh, Philip K. Dick story, um, novel. Um, But he felt shorted by the Polish publisher of the translation of Ubik, uh, and Lim was the one who actually did the translation. Uh. Um, and Dick seemed to think that Lim was somehow responsible for the f- publisher shorting him, like it was somehow uh-huh. on, fell on him. Um, whether or not, I, I don't know. I couldn't find any details about whether it was or wasn't or anything. Which is, but I don't, I'm not sure how it would. Yeah, how I, would I, I be don't the know either. Uh, but if, for some reason, Philip K. Dick seemed to think that was the case. Uh, also, it was suggested that Philip K. Dick was under the influence of strong medications, including opioids at the time, and may have experienced a slight disconnect from reality <laughs> sometime before writing the letter. Um, oh, that sounds about and right. And the last thing mentioned is that a defensive patriotism of Dick against Lem's attack on American science fiction, as I mentioned earlier, may have played some role in his letter to the FBI. <laughs> I just thought it was a very interesting little story. I love a good author feud. Yeah, a good author feud. And I couldn't find anything about them ever, like, making up or anything, so... <laughs> So, Lim said of Solaris that it has, quote, always been a juicy prey for critics, end quote, with interpretations ranging from that of Freudism, a critique of contact and colonialism, contact in this instance being, like, first contact between Uh cultures, um, or specifically in this novel's interest between alien life and uh, humans, ranging from Freudism to a critique of contact and colonialism to anti-communism, the latter stating that the ocean represents the Soviet Union, there's a red ocean on the planet, Mm. uh, and the people on the space station represent the satellite countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Interesting. Also, they keep calling it a space station, which I also thought I remember reading, but it's not in space. It's like on the planet's surface. It's like from from what I've gathered, from I've only a couple chapters in, but it seems like the station is almost like um cuz they're like you, they're in the atmosphere he he descends through the atmosphere to get to the station so it's not mm-hmm. in space uh it seems almost like um uh like like the uh what's the um the big like helicarriers from like uh avengers or whatever oh. like you know yeah, yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah. of what it seems like like it's or somehow floating above flying above the surface of this huh. cuz the planet's all like an ocean um, except for a few small islands. And so they're like floating the station, but it's not a space station. It's not like the ISS, like out in outer space. It's right. like close to the surface of the planet to some extent. Interesting. It's very interesting, but everything calls it a space station all the time. Cause I guess that's the closest, I don't know. It's more like an, an atmosphere station. Yes. So <laughs> as you mentioned, uh, about the translation, the English translation of this no- novel is uh, a bit of a sticking point. And unfortunately I've just found out that I'm reading the quote wrong version. <laughs> So the novel was translated into English in 1970 by Joanna Kilmartin and Steve Cox. Uh, Lem, who read English fluently, repeatedly voiced his disappointment in this adaptation. And that is the one that I have. Mm. Uh, Yeah, like I said, unfortunately, this is the version I'm reading as the 2011 uh, English translation by Bill Johnston, which has been positively reviewed by Lem's wife and son. Lem was dead at this time, but... They have read it and said this is more closely, uh, this is a better translation. Uh, But it's not available in print due to legal issues. Uh, You can, however, read it on on Amazon Kindle uh, or as an audiobook. But it's not like you can't buy a copy of it. And so the physical copy of the book I have is the Kill Martin Cox translation, which is apparently (laughs) (laughs) suboptimal. 
But I'll, we're going to read I'll it take, and see. I'll take responsibility for that. I bought the book without looking into what the proper <laughs> yeah. translation was. Uh, but we're going to go with that one and see uh, see how it is. So uh, Solaris has been adapted quite a few times, including four audio plays, four audio books, five stage plays, four operas in German, Italian, Austrian, and Japanese, and three movies. A 1968 TV uh, made for TV um, mm. Uh, like in the USSR or whatever, mm-hmm. um, Soviet film, uh, the 1972 one, which is the one we're doing, and a 2002 film starring George Clooney. Of the 2002 film, Lim said, quote, To my best knowledge, the book was not dedicated to erotic problems of people in outer space. As Solaris's author, I shall allow myself to repeat that I only wanted to create a vision of a human encounter with something that certainly exists in a mighty manner, perhaps, but cannot be reduced to human concepts, ideas, or images. This is why the book was entitled Solaris and not, quote, love in outer space. Not quote, sorry. And not love in outer space, end quote. So uh, he was not a fan of the 2002 film. He died a few years after it mm. came out, I believe. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I couldn't find anything about what he thought of the 1972 one. I assume he enjoyed it more than... Um, oh, do you have... I think I have cool. a couple, maybe. And if you have any information, <laughs> we're about to find out in our Solaris movie facts. Let us take you with us to Solaris, planet of mystery, embodiment of man's latent conflict with the unknown. Man face-to-face with his conscience and with his past. Directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, who gave us the classic film Andrei Rublev. All right, so as you said, there are a couple different film versions, but the one that we are talking about is a 1972 Soviet science fiction art film mm-hmm. co-written and directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. I'm assuming is how you say his last name. Um, this one is pretty highly reviewed. It has an 8.1 on IMDb, a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 90% on Metacritic, which is like one of the highest yeah, Metacritic scores Metacritic's, I've ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty high. <laughs> um, Solaris won the uh, Grand, Grand Prix Special du Jury mm-hmm. and the... Fipresi? I don't know Fipresi? what the Fipresi prize is. Prize? I mean, this Grand Prix is like the award. Yeah, uh, These were both at the 1972 oh, no, Film sorry. Festival. Yeah, continue. Um, it was also nominated for Palme d'Or. Yeah, that's the big award. That's, so yeah. it didn't win. The big it was award, nominated it was for nominated. it, which is still good. Yeah. Um, it generally received pretty positive reviews from critics, and it is often cited as one of the greatest science fiction films in the history of cinema, mm. which just goes to show how little I know about cinema, because yep. I had never I'd heard never of this heard movie. Of <laughs> and I, I've seen a lot of good science fiction films, yeah. and I had not heard of it somehow. This next note I have here, I copy-pasted this directly from Wikipedia, because I... L- I this might be one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever read on Wikipedia. Like to me personally, this yeah. really tickled me. <laughs> uh, so this note is, this is verbatim. In 1968, the director Andrei Tarkovsky had several motives for cinematically adapting Stanislaw Lem's science fiction novel Solaris. First, he admired Lem's work. Second, he needed work and money. <laughs> 
There you go. I mean, those are two. I, very those are good two reasons. really good reasons very good to reasons. make a movie. I like this thing a lot and want to bring it to the film. Also, a broke. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got no problem with that. Um, but occasionally, yeah, occasionally I find something on Wikipedia that I just yeah. love the way whoever wrote whatever it phrased it. Wrote that, yeah. <laughs> um, but another inspiration that he had was uh, his desire to bring emotional depth to the science fiction genre, which uh, he, Tarkovsky, regarded as shallow due to its attention to technological invention. Um, In a 1970 interview, he actually singled out Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, called it um, phony on many points, and a lifeless schema with only pretensions to truth. That's a... Wow. So it's really like harsh words for a, a film that is yeah. oft considered quite great. Yeah, a classic. And, yeah. and and amongst the sci-fi films that many would consider um more sort of philosophical in nature and less, yeah. you know, it's not it's not like Star Wars or something right. which I've, isn't, you know, we've talked about not exactly science fiction, but it is one of those that is definitely more sort of introspective and philosophical about like humanity and that right. sort of thing. Um, no, but not he's so like, much of like a but, popcorn yeah. eating film. No, but it, it is funny that even then he was like allu- phony. phony allusions phony. to truth or pretensions to truth. I hate the word phony. Reminds me of Catcher in the Rye. Mm. Um, so uh, Tarkovsky and Lem collab- did collaborate some and they remained in communication about the adaptation um, however, Tarkovsky co-wrote the first draft of the film, and the author was apparently furious over, quote, drastic alterations yeah. to his novel. You know, Tarkovsky went back. Um, he did another draft, um, which ended up being what they went ahead and put into production. Mm-hmm. Shooting for that began in March of 1971 with cinematographer um, Vadim Yusov. Mm-hmm. Um, who also had photographed some of Tarkovsky's previous films, um, but they apparently fought so much while working on this film that they never worked together wow. again. How, how so we're, we're, we're marked by some drama here, this movie. Um, a couple um, kind of production notes that I thought were interesting. The Solaris Ocean, which you mentioned, mm-hmm was created with acetone, aluminum powder, and dyes, which sounds delicious. Yeah. Uh, Mikhail Rodeman uh, designed the space station to be a lived-in, beat-up, decrepit, rather than, like, a shiny kind of futuristic Which, look. I mean, is interesting only insofar as if you read the book, that's the only way you would design this (laughs) like literally he gets there and it's just like a it's a wreck like it's all like decrepit and falling apart again i'm only like a couple chapters in but um because of what's been going on on the station is from my understanding like there's like there's like leaks and piles of shit Mm. on the floor every like it's just like a mess falling apart yeah because the people the people on this on the station have not been taking care of it because of the Stuff that's been going on. Again, I, I'm not far enough in to know what's been going on with them, but stuff has been going on with them psychologically, so they've not mm. been taking care of the space station or this interesting, interesting. Atmos station or whatever, <laughs> whatever we're calling it. Um, 
But the production also apparently did consult with an aerospace engineer, and um, that person lent them a 1960s-era mainframe computer for set decoration. So that's probably a pretty big thing. Yes. Um, I'm going to uh, take this quote that I found at face value since I haven't read or seen this property. Um, Solaris apparently doesn't much concern itself with real-world technology, doesn't refer to it much, but apparently did correctly predict two devices that ended up becoming real, um, which is home video recording and widescreen flat panel TVs. Interesting. That was interesting. I guess... In the sixties, they didn't. I feel like in the sixties, home video home video recording was already a thing. Like home, not home video, yeah, like I, film yeah. recording. But yeah, I'm because I'm pretty sure my parents, my my mom's family had a video camera in like the fifties. Yeah, I think like a little right. like you know just one of those little yeah, like six yeah, yeah. twelve millimeter maybe whatever. maybe they mean some other specific... maybe they specifically mean video yeah. like video cassettes or something yeah. I don't know uh, yeah. I guess we'll find out. Um, so the actress, one of the actresses in this film, uh, Natalia Bondarchuk, 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 um, who plays the character of Hari. Uh, I have not. I've only met two characters so far. I'm not very far <laughs> in. So. Um, and and also that's one of the things that's uh, I'm sure these are the correct names. My the trans this translation the names are some of the names are changed to like Americanized names. So I may not I may have to mm. f- figure out who that is. Um, she revealed in a 2010 interview that she fell in love with Tarkovsky during filming, um, and then. Um, was suicidal after their wow. relationship ended. That's this how is, how would be how how she described it. This is such a Polish film. <laughs> <laughs> um. So so the author back to uh, Lem. This is what I found. Um, Lem maintained that he quote never really liked Tarkovsky's version of his novel. Um. Tarkovsky apparently wanted a film based on the novel, but artistically independent of it, while Lem opposed any divergence from Hmm. what he wrote. Um, Lem even went so far as to say that Tarkovsky made crime and punishment rather than Solaris, um, while Tarkovsky fired back that Lem did not fully appreciate cinema and expected the film to merely illustrate the novel rather than be its own original cinematic piece. I mean, no, I'm I'm biased, but I'm <laughs> I'm uh, inclined to agree with Tarkovsky on this one. <laughs> uh, again, having not read the finished reading the book yet or seen the movie, we shall see if yeah. if we think it is a good adaptation or not. But um, I would agree that generally, yeah, if he, you know. Sounds like potentially Lim had a, a bit of a a pure, maybe not purist is the right word, but a, he was a bit of a, a stick in the mud about adaptations, <laughs> at least of his work. It is interesting because this is, I mean, this is the the debate that we run yeah. into all the, all the time on this show. Is it better to adapt something beat for beat from the book or to make it its own thing? Yeah. So, and we pretty routinely come down the side of making it its own thing in a way that at least captures like yeah. ideally you want to make it its own thing in a way that captures the sort of essence or spirit of the novel but 
Both can be good. Both can be good in their it own It just way. depends on, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we don't need to have that nope. debate again right now. Um, in the autobiographical documentary Voyage of Time, which came out in 1983, Tarkovsky um, claimed that he viewed Solaris as an artistic failure because it did not transcend genre mm -hmm. as he believed another of his films, 1979 Stalker, did. Um, and he felt that way due to the required technological dialogue and the limitations of special effects at the time. Hmm. Um, but everybody else liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Roger Ebert gave Solaris three out of four stars and wrote, Solaris isn't a fast-moving action picture. It's a thoughtful, deep, sensitive movie that uses the freedom of science fiction to, to examine human nature. It starts slow, but once you get involved, it grows on you. You could literally just substitute out the first word Solaris there with 2001 a space odyssey and i feel like that would be the exact same review like you could write know. the exact same <laughs> review for 2001 i'm not saying, I'm also, saying i've never I'm just looked saying up it's funny how ebert reviewed 2001 a space no, odyssey, yeah, I so i don't know yeah. how i don't know how he would compare them no. um, the film's influence on other films has also been noted these include um, specifically event horizon and inception Inse event horizon which i haven't seen all of i can see because it's about people on a base encountering a thing and it, mm -hmm. it psychologically affecting them. I don't really know where the inception, unless there's some weird like. Time I guess we'll stuff. find out. Yeah, I, I shall find out. Movie, I just, yeah. I'm just interested to see from the premise of what I know. Yeah, I get the event horizon comparison. I'd be interested to see where the inception and comparison. Maybe comes we'll in. be watching it and we'll be like, "Hey, yeah, inception." Yep. Uh, this film is part of the Criterion Collection. It is included in Roger Ebert's Great Movies list, and it's included on the 1001 Movies to See Before You Die collection by Steven Schneider. And it is over an hour longer than Soderbergh's 2002 remake. I saw that. I looked up the runtime, and I was like, oh, it's almost three hours long. <laughs> yeah. Which is wild, because I the book is only 200 pages. It's not like a, a tome. So it's like, how, they, which is, it was made it funny, too, when you, when when he's like, oh, he just wanted a beat-by-beat, beat, you know, recreation of the book. It's like, did you not do that? Because you had 200 pages in a book is... 200 minutes? No, nah, I mean, that's not true. But <laughs> you could adapt a 200-page book in three hours pretty closely, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Pretty close. All right. Where can we watch Solaris? Uh, as always, check your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, check with them. It's not available to stream anywhere. Uh, it's also, just as a warning, it is in Polish. Yeah. Um, so you have to watch with subtitles. Sub I don't, I subtitle city for us. Yeah, this I didn't week. see. Yeah, for yeah. Uh, I didn't see a dub of it anywhere, which I prefer subtitles anyways. Right. Over a dub. But I didn't see a dub. If I know some people may prefer that. Um, I couldn't find one, but I didn't do a ton of looking. But it is available to rent on Prime Video, uh, YouTube, Vudu, and iTunes for $3.99. I'm sure other places. But there was no free streaming version mm. of it anywhere. So. Right, so it's not gonna like have to on Netflix it. or anything. No. Yeah. You're going to have to rent it if you want to watch it. And just be warned, it is subtitled in three hours long. So. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently very, very good. So there you go. All right, that's going to do it for this prequel episode. As always, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads, uh, liking, subscribing, or following, whatever 
uh, you can do on each of those platforms uh, and responding so that we can give your feedback in the next prequel episode. Also, you can do us a favor by going to patreon.com slash this film is lit and supporting us for two, five or $15 a month uh, and get di- access to different benefits at each of those levels, including mention it here. We'll mention it again on the main episode. We're uh, about to record a review and discussion of uh, for our patron bonus content, which you get access to at the $5 level of the 2018 film Cold War, which we watched last night. Uh, and have some notes on. It's another Polish movie, mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. in Polish, uh, and some French, with subtitles. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, like, as you mentioned uh, a, a second ago, back-to-back films for us um, in Polish, which is interesting. I don't know if I've ever watched two movies in a row in Polish with English subtitles. Yeah, I <laughs> it's think probably that's a first the first for, for me, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that'll be out sometime in the next week or so. Uh, and so if you head over to Patreon.com, Support us for five bucks or more. Uh, you can hear that review and all of the backlog catalog of our bonus episodes. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, until next week when we're talking about 1972 Solaris. Guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.